It's time to awaken your inner traveler and zip around the world as money is sent to the people who rely on it. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. Hey, that wasn't me. I didn't serve a prison sentence. I was out working. Here's all the documentation showing that I had a job and I was renting an apartment and making my car payment. You know, I wasn't in prison in Kansas. Eva Velasquez is the president and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center. She's describing what can happen when someone is the victim of criminal identity theft. And you have applied for a job and it's contingent on the background check coming through as clean. And lo and behold, the job offer is rescinded because your background check shows that you've been convicted of numerous felonies in a state that you have never even lived in. The unfortunate reality is it is you, the victim's responsibility to clear the record and clear your name. And the process varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Criminal identity theft is the least common kind that Eva's organization deals with. But opening up financial accounts in someone else's name? Well, that's commonplace. And one of the problems that Visa Direct is working hard to solve. That is very common. And because our credentials, things like our social security number, date of birth, mother's maiden name, those are all widely available on the dark web now. I don't want a fear monger, but I don't want anybody to have the, the misguided notion that none of their credentials have been compromised. We can pretty much, if we look at the state of data breaches, almost guarantee that every single person has had those credentials compromised at least once. And it's not just data breaches. We are seeing that individuals are self-compromising their account credentials. They are being told by someone either on the phone or through a direct message on social media or a text or an email to share those credentials. So common. And boy, does it sound like a legitimate reason. And, you know, they maybe they think they're talking to the platform themselves or a friend within their network. But that's the other common way is people are self-compromising those credentials, not realizing what's happening. Being defrauded has consequences that go far beyond just the loss of money. These folks are scared. They're angry. They're grieving. They're grieving the fact that they felt like they were safe and They now have seen the demonstrable failure of the systems that were in place to protect them. And Eva's seen the increase in the sheer number of victims firsthand. I do despair a little bit because we talk to so many victims. Every year, the traffic to our call center has grown. And every year, I learn about some new scheme or scam or angle that the fraudsters are using, the amount of data that we ourselves have created about us, particularly through social media and put out there, has created essentially a roadmap for anyone that wants it, particularly the bad actors. It's a roadmap to hijack our brain. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. I'm Indre Viscontis. In this podcast, we follow the money as it zips around the world, enabling our fellow humans to survive and thrive. And we talk to the experts who are building the tools that will transform the next generation of money movement. Most, if not all of us, are probably aware that at some point, some of the personal data we've entered online has fallen into the wrong hands. 
Or at least we have some idea that we need to change passwords frequently, and we need to be careful about entering sensitive personal information online. But the pull of convenience can be stronger than our fear of being defrauded. So many of us now just trust companies that make our lives easier by digitizing money movement, allowing us to pay for goods and services with our phones rather than carrying cash. And using an alias, like an email address, phone number, or fingerprint, feels less risky than entering bank account numbers or even a credit card. It's one step removed from what we think of as our financial information. But that means that each data breach is more and more potentially problematic, even as they become more and more frequent. With the digitization of our financial transactions, well, there's also a human element that might help explain why financial fraud is so common. We're all tempted to cheat sometimes, especially if we think there's no chance that we might get caught. But we also know that stealing money outright is wrong. So if someone leaves a pile of cash in the break room, we're less likely to take a dollar from the pile than we are to, say, take a soda from the communal fridge. In a clever experiment by Dan Ariely, a behavioral economist at Duke University, students were divided up into three groups, and each group was given a worksheet with problems to solve. Now, the first group gave their worksheets to the experimenter who tallied up the total number of problems solved and then paid them 50 cents for each correct answer. The second group of students were told to tear up their worksheets and then just tell the experimenter how many they had solved correctly. It's probably no surprise to you that the second group happened to have a higher average score, suggesting, of course, that they inflated their numbers a bit, knowing that they wouldn't get caught. But the third group is the most interesting for us. They were also told to tear up their worksheets. But instead of the experimenter handing them the cash for what they claimed was the total number of correct answers, they instead received a token for each correct answer. And then they had to walk across the room to another experimenter who turned those tokens into cash. See where I'm going with this? This last group miraculously claimed, on average, to have solved more than twice as many questions as the first group, and about 50% more than the second group. So adding just one step made it much more likely that the students would cheat and ultimately steal money from the experiment. When we're even one step removed from our money, it becomes easier to justify immoral behavior, which is maybe one reason why financial fraud in this digital age is rampant. So what is Visa Direct doing to help keep our digital transactions safer? Joining me today to talk about financial fraud and risk is Sue Anayans, Vice President of Visa Direct Ecosystem and Risk. Sue Onions, welcome to Money Travels. Thank you. So at the top of the episode, we heard from Eva Velasquez, who works with fraud victims every day. And she's seen a major uptick recently in the number of people who are seeking her services. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the current state of money movement fraud in the world today. Is it more common than it used to be? I think there's a couple of factors coming in here. So the pandemic definitely is a big influence because it essentially drove up the volume of remote financial trading, including money movement. That was because people couldn't meet and hand cash to each other. So there was a huge uptick in remote finance and remote money movement. 
And fraudsters have found ways to take advantage of that. And so that's part of the reason for the growth in fraud that we see. It is growing fast. And I think as the fraudsters have attacked money movement, they've found smarter and cleverer ways and more complex ways to target their victims. And we in Visa see that. And I think that's what Eva is referring to. So let's talk about some specific types of fraud or types of cases that maybe you're seeing What about scam or authorized push payment fraud? What is that? And are you seeing an uptick there? Yes, there's definitely an uptick there. And also that is being reported by a number of the trade bodies. So, for example, in my home country in the UK, the UK Finance, which is the local finance and banking trade association, published statistics that showed that in 2021, it was about nearly £600 million of authorized push payment fraud, which for the first time was higher than card fraud. So yeah, that type of fraud is picking up. So what is it? It's in some ways both very old and very new. So scams and cons and frauds, people being tricked out of their money for fake investments or fake purchases. That's not new. Yeah, that's as old as the hills. Back in the early... 1800s, there was a fraud that you know, many people have probably heard of where some guy called Gregor McGregor from Scotland made today's equivalent of £4 billion pounds selling fake land in a fake colony in South America. So, you know, scams and cons are not new. But what's new is that fraudsters are able to perpetrate their crimes across the electronic media. They can do that at the end of a wire. They tend to often use social media in various ways. So they will basically approach their victims through social media in ways that make it difficult for them to be identified and they pretend to be someone selling the best investment you've ever made, something for nothing, the incredible price. And then they trick their victims into sending funds through electronic money movement. And then the victim has never met the fraudster and they can just disappear. And these kinds of scam frauds or authorized push payment frauds are becoming more and more common. So there's some evidence that the kinds of behaviors that we see on the internet that aren't particularly moral are more common in a digital age than if we were interacting in person. So for example, people are more likely to make mean comments to each other when there's a sense of anonymity or you know that kind of one step removed. And so I wonder if in terms of the kinds of people that also perpetrate these scams, does it just feel easier or is it just that they are getting better at doing it and it's easier to reach others? I think there's a combination of factors. I think, you know, the fact that they never meet their victims. Yeah, sure. It must make it easier for the, some ways easier for the fraudster, right? And obviously it makes it easier for them to target the victim because the victim never meets the fraudster. I mean, the kind of fraud that hits the headlines is romance fraud. Many of us have heard about that. I mean, that actually must be quite hard for a fraudster to do when you're tricking someone out of their money by pretending to be in love with them, pretending to be their friend. You know, it happens and it's easy for people to do. And I know there was like 70,000 frauds, I think, that were reported according to the Federal Trade Commission of that type in the United States last year. So it's, it's not uncommon. But yeah, I think definitely, you know, the fact that you can target your victims remotely makes it easier. 
And I imagine that's just doubly painful for the victims because not only are they losing money, but there's also shame associated yeah. with, you know. It's embarrassing. Yeah. You know, I, I nearly fell victim to one of these frauds. Not a romance mm. fraud, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I nearly fell victim to one of these frauds. I had a call from somebody saying that they were from my internet company. And they said, your internet account has been taken over by money launderers and they're using your internet accounts to launder funds. It's a cock and bull story. And we need to help you reset your internet account so that we can get these launderers off your account. And I, I don't know why it just sounded credible. And they basically came in and they, you know, they did that thing that people do when they are genuinely helping you with your technical problems, which is they take over your computer. And they came in and they started to take over the computer. And I mean, just started to think this doesn't sound right. And actually I called some of my colleagues in Visa and, and said, yeah, no, this kind of thing is common. And later I, I actually saw a TV program about this kind of fraud. It's actually, that particular fraud is very common. They get people sitting in a room in some foreign country. They don't know who you are. They can be very aggressive. They were very aggressive with me. You know, actually when I called them and said, I want to talk to your manager and they got this manager on and it's like, yeah, yeah, you really need to do this. And I said, look, I think you're a fraudster. And he got really aggressive. But, you know, it's an organized enterprise. And this is what people don't realize. And because you're just some anonymous person at the end of a line, often in another country, I would not like to be one of those young people sitting in a room just running these frauds all day from some office somewhere. But maybe it just feels remote and they find it easier to justify it to themselves. You've described a couple of different scenarios. And of course, there are many, many more. There's a lot of creativity when it comes to how people defraud each other. Yep. And I wonder if that really makes it, I'm sure it does, challenging for regulators. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how are regulations supposed to work to prevent and punish fraud and how they can deal with the vast number of different ways in which people can be defrauded? Well, regulations in many countries will protect you if you did not authorize a fraud. So basically, if a fraudster steals your card account details, steals your electronic wallet details, and, you know, essentially breaks into your account and steals your money, and you didn't authorize it, then you are protected in many countries by the national regulation. And Visa, of course, has a zero liability policy that protects our consumers from that type of fraud. And of course, we have many years of experience. We offer products to our clients that help them prevent this type of fraud. And we also have invested, I think, $9 billion, I believe, over the last five years in fraud prevention, monitoring, detecting fraud, building products and solutions that we offer to our clients. What we call unauthorized fraud, where basically the victim has not been initiated or participated in that payment, there's protection. Unfortunately, authorized fraud or scam fraud is not protected. Consumers are not protected in most countries. But Visa and most of the finance industry are very concerned about this kind of fraud. So what is Visa doing to help? So Visa invests significantly, along with many others in the finance sector, in educating consumers 
on how to avoid authorised frauds or scam frauds. And there are some indicators that consumers should all be aware of to identify a potential fraud. For example, aggressive tactics, promising something that's too good to be true, urgency, you know, you have to do it now, otherwise it's going to be a real problem for you. So that's something that consumers need to be very aware of. And that's basically the best way to, I think, at the moment, to protect consumers against this type of authorised push payment or scam fraud is we need more and more education for consumers in how to avoid this kind of fraud. You mentioned that one of the spaces in which Visa was helping educate people. And that reminds me of there's this I guess, stereotype that easy targets are people who are older. But there is also some neuroscience supporting why that might be the case. What we see is that there's really no decline in wisdom as people age. Where there can be a decline is in how quickly they can process information and how easily they are able to inhibit distractions. So as you're describing the sense that you have to get something done now, that there's all these things that you need to consider and they're just kind of throwing information at someone. So for someone who's older, where it's a little bit more challenging for them to sort of think on their feet, as it were, I can see why there would be a higher likelihood of those fraud scams being successful in that population. Is there anything specific that Visa might be doing or even in terms of legislation in places that you've seen around the world where there might be an understanding that this population is perhaps more vulnerable and maybe there's some way of putting more protections in place? Well, I would see that regulation is specifically targeted at older people. I would say, though, that we're all aware that older people are vulnerable. I have an elderly relative that fell victim to a scam and he did what you should never do, which is give away the password on his email. He's a member of one of these London clubs, right, with a bunch of other elderly English gentlemen. And they got hold of his email password and then sent a bunch of emails to all his other elderly friends asking for money. You're saying, well, purportedly from him saying, I'm in trouble, I need money. Fortunately, none of them fell victim. But yeah, he should have known not to give away his password. But yeah, he was probably under pressure and somebody was telling him that it was urgent. Back to your question about regulation. Obviously, regulators are concerned about this kind of fraud. We all read the comments that they've put out. I'd say we're basically keeping track of the developments and looking at making sure that we understand where the regulators are going. But right now, I haven't seen any regulations specifically targeted at older folks. So as you mentioned, these authorized types of frauds and scams are becoming increasingly common and a bigger problem. What is Visa doing to educate both the public and potentially their clients or the companies that they work with to try to mitigate risk when it comes to this particular type of authorized fraud? Yeah, so we have been working along with many others in the finance sector. We've been working on consumer education campaigns. We also work with our clients. So a number of our clients also work with their consumers to educate them to be aware of the risks of scam frauds and authorized frauds. You'll have seen it yourself. I mean, often when you're about to send some money or about to do something, a warning will pop up and say, are you sure that you want to do this and scams are a risk and fraud is a risk and basically make sure that you're doing the right thing here. 
that is, I think, the best way for us to um, try and stop the growth of these kinds of scams and authorised frauds is through extensive education to consumers to help them understand not to fall victim. Yeah, underscore that from a neuroscientific perspective, those pop-ups are effective. You think that, oh, it's just one more thing to click through. But one of the ways in which it works is by slowing down the speed at which a person has to make a decision, which is important for people who are older, where naturally the processing speed that they operate in has slowed. So I imagine that that's good for the population that seems most vulnerable to some of these authorized scams. Yes, definitely. And of course, Everyone is at risk because scams target us where we are most vulnerable, preying on our feelings. So what role do our emotions play here? You think of all the human emotions that cause people to do crazy things that they shouldn't. It's basically, it's fear, it's greed, it's loneliness, can be fear of missing out. You know, one of the most common scams is people who target generally young men, hey, you need to invest in crypto now because crypto is going up and you're going to miss out. And, you know, if you invest now, it's going to, you're going to double your money in three months. And they get themselves on social media. They develop themselves completely fake identities as investor advisors, and they persuade vulnerable people who want to make money fast. So there's a fear, fear of missing out, greed, Buy a car for half the normal price. And then, of course, loneliness in the romance scams that we've all heard about. People are lonely in the modern world, you know, especially during the pandemic. I mean, my goodness, there's so many people on their own, no company, lonely, totally open to being targeted by a romance swindler who's going to come in and persuade them that they care for them and that they love them and then, you know, take their money. Sadly. So that's what fraudsters use. They work out what is your weak point? What are you most afraid of? What do you most want in your life? And target that. And uh, they're very clever. Yeah. And I think that that also underscores the fact that none of us are immune. You know, we might think, oh, I'm too smart to be subjected to fraud. (laughs) But of course, the consequences of fraud go beyond just hurt feelings. Here's Eva Velasquez again from the Identity Theft Resource Center. I think there is a lack of understanding and appreciation for the victim experience if you don't have that life experience. And for victims, they often refer to their identity crime issue like you would a medical condition. It goes into remission, but it never really goes away. And the fact that we use static credentials in so many of our interactions, it really does make it permanent and it does make it something that only goes into remission. And think about having that hanging over your head emotionally. There is absolutely an emotional and a financial toll, regardless of what type of identity crime. And it makes people feel really vulnerable to that happening again They feel angry, they feel ashamed, embarrassed sometimes. We still have this almost reflexive judgment when it comes to victims of financial crimes in general, but identity crimes in particular, and we want to apportion some blame to them. So all of those things that go into that judgment, that is what leads to the long-term emotional impacts. and. Trauma is trauma is trauma. So 
this can have long-term and deep consequences for people. It's essentially a crime. Even authorized fraud is a crime. Consumer protection rules may not be as black and white in terms of obligation to compensate the consumer, but it's still a criminal activity. And if there's an authorized fraud ring targeting victims for romance fraud or purchase fraud or investment fraud, the police will get involved. It's a crime. That in itself, for our clients, that's a big cost when authorized frauds are committed. Are there parts of the globe that are more challenging when it comes to fraud? And I imagine since cross-border payments are becoming easier, that this could be an area in which there is increase. You know, as you mentioned, that there sometimes are these workspaces of lots of people who are engaging in fraud that may be defrauding someone from a different country. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of cross-border potential fraud and also whether there are parts of the globe that are more vulnerable or more challenging? We have seen a lot of fraud on money movement in the United States because that's where we have high volumes of money movement on Visa Direct. I think from some of the cases that we've seen, the fraudsters, they may operate across the United States, but often it's quite local. I mean, we've seen some frauds that have been very local to particular parts of Florida. So it depends. I mean, yes, you know, there's the stereotype of the fraudsters sitting in a room in somewhere in a foreign country attempting to defraud people. And that does happen. But a lot of the frauds that we see on the domestic money movement in the United States are actually just basically set up and run within the United States. In addition to education, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the things that Visa Direct has done to improve the ecosystem oversight when it comes to the technical side of things. So when it comes to card fraud or unauthorized fraud on card, when that card is used to fund money movement, Visa Direct takes advantage of actually well-established tools and products that we offer to our clients that use preventive modeling techniques to score each transaction for potential risk of fraud. And a lot of our clients do take advantage of that and they use it as a way to decline payments that they believe might be fraud. So that's something that's been long established on the card purchase side of the shop and essentially translates over to use of cards to fund money movement. We are looking at how we could do something similar on push payments where a Visa Direct payment is used to push funds into a card where we'd use machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques to score a push payment into a card to indicate that it could be potentially risky. So that's very much something for the future is just we're starting to work on. But yes, absolutely. Use of artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques to predict and anticipate fraud is very important tools for us. And I imagine this is something that VisaDirect is well-placed to really address this because in order to train up artificial intelligence using machine learning, you need a lot of data. And so having this massive set of rails and the sheer number of transactions actually empowers, I would think, Visa to be able to see trends that might be more likely to indicate fraud compared with smaller companies. Definitely the fact that we have high volumes of Visa Direct payments will help to feed any 
your models that we develop, that is definitely something that we'll be taking advantage of in any risk scoring tools that we prepare. Yeah. I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about horizon scanning and why this is an important concept when it comes to looking at the trends and regulatory changes across money movement. Obviously, Visa keeps track of all the regulatory changes that we see coming up around the world. We also have very extensive fraud monitoring activities within Visa. Our risk team monitors all different types of frauds that are coming up, including on money movement. Staying aware of the regulatory changes, the trends in fraud, and being prepared for those with new solutions, new tools, new policies is something that we work on all the time. Absolutely. And of course, in addition to just having a high volume of transactions going across Visa's rails, it also has many decades of expertise. As you mentioned, fraud is not something new. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this historical knowledge can enhance the way that Visa Direct approaches fraud protection when it comes to money movement. Yeah, definitely. So Visa Direct payments, when they're funded by a card, essentially, it's very similar to a card purchase. And many of the tools and products that we've developed to offer our clients and the policies that we've developed basically translate over to the funding of money movement with a card. So I can give you a few examples. I mean, we've already talked about the Visa Zero Liability Policy that protects consumers if their card is used without their participation to pay for something. And yet we have a range of tools and services that we offer to our clients to help them prevent fraud. A new one that we're now coming up with, we expect to be supported by our clients in North America and Europe, is something called Account Name Inquiry. So this is a new service that would allow the service provider that's offering a money movement service or a wallet service to check whether the name on the card that they're either pulling funds from or sending funds to matches the name that they think it should be, which would typically actually be a name that they've registered on the wallet or registered for the person to person. So let me give you an example. So you've opened an account with a brokerage, right? You've got a lot of money in that brokerage account and somebody breaks into that account and tries to take all your money and send it to themselves. So this service would help the brokerage company identify that there's a fraud going on because they've already verified you. They've registered you to their account in Dravis Contus. They've checked who you are. They've checked you're not a criminal and they expect you to be sending the money to yourself, right? So by checking whether the name on the card is also in Dravis Contus, if it's not, if it's John Smith, they know there's probably a fraud going on or there may be a fraud going on and they can stop the fraudulent payout. So that's a new service that we actually introduced last year, but we are just working with our clients to support it in North America and the UK. So one of the other risk mitigators that Visa Direct provides are called velocity controls. That's right. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those are and how those impact the fact that there is this appetite for nearly real-time transactions across the world as we become more digital. So the money would still move real-time if you're sending it to a bank that supports that on the other side of the world. 
but velocity controls are a limit on how much an account can receive in a day or in seven days or in a month, right? So it's a way to stop a fraudster, for example, that's receiving funds. Typically, if a fraudster is opened an account and is receiving fraudulently obtained funds, they'll be receiving a lot of money, way more than you would expect a normal consumer to be receiving. And so the velocity controls just allow, they basically put a limit on how much can be received in a day or a week or a month so that you can stop some of the more egregious fraudulent activities. One last question before we get into the rapid fire section, which is about Visa's ecosystem readiness. So can you talk a little bit about the ecosystem readiness as a differentiator for Visa compared to its competitors or other options, and maybe how it impacts the complexities of cross-border payments or differences in regions? Yeah, so Visa Direct has very extensive reach. So we work hard with our clients to get them ready to ensure that they're comfortable, that they can safely receive the transactions. I mean, velocity controls that you just mentioned are part of that. And yeah, I mean, the fact that Visa is able to offer a network, particularly the ability for real-time payment across the globe, is something that very much differentiates Visa Direct. So on Money Travels, we like to end each episode with some rapid-fire questions. I'm ready. Here we go. What developing technology do you predict will change how money moves between people or businesses? Distributed ledger technology. If someone left your favorite kind of soda or dessert in the office break room, how many days would you let pass before you helped yourself to it? Three days. What aspect of money movement is more complicated than most people think? Meeting regulatory requirements. Can you predict the future of money movement with a single catchy phrase? Faster, simpler, more secure. Excellent. Sue O'Neillens, thank you so much for being on Money Travels. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to this episode of Money Travels. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow the show and leave us a review so more people can find it. Until next time, I'm Indre Viscontis, and this has been Money Travels, presented by Visa. Oh, and one last word goes to Eva. I care deeply about identity crime victims, and I want to make sure that they know they don't have to resolve these issues on their own. There are free services available to them, and there's no shame or embarrassment in asking for help.